We are continuing through the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5, so if you'd please turn there now. Matthew chapter number 5. We're going to pick up in verse number 17. But let's just get our bearings um, where, where we've been so far. Uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We have begun with Christ reminding us who we are as kingdom citizens. And he did that through the Beatitudes series that we have just come through. And then he, ex- he explained to us how to live out that character in front of the world, what we studied last week um, as the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And now Christ is going to turn a corner and begin to explain how we can live that character out. And he's going to say that righteous living is his requirement for kingdom citizens. And the theme of righteousness is going to go from verse 17 all the way through the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so to sum up where we've been, the Sermon on the Mount has given the character of kingdom citizens in the Beatitudes. It's given the effects of those kingdom citizens by showing that they are salt and light. And now we're going to move on to the demands of the kingdom. Let's, let's just pray again as we, as we go to Matthew 5. Father, thank you that we can open your word. Thank you that it it will speak this morning. You will speak. And we look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start reading in verse number 13, just just to uh, review where we were last week, and we'll read through verse number 20. Matthew 5, 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5, 17 to 20, we run into some verses that that some people have called the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. Um, We are about to jump into some deep water, and we're going to do it really quickly. Um, But I want to encourage you before we get there that the end result is well worth our our effort as we think this passage through. Because what we're going to see this morning as we study this passage is we're going to have an opportunity to gain insight into the mind and the mission of Christ himself. This passage poses some difficulties for us. There's there's some hard things in here. And yet, in the end, we're not just going to know more about another passage. At the end of these verses, you are going to know more about Christ. And that's why, that's why we're here, right? We gather together not out of duty or out of obligation. We're here because we have a relationship with the living Christ. And so our very heartbeat is, I want to know more about him. I want to understand him better. I want to see God's word unfold more about him to me. And this passage is going to do that if we can see the truth in these words. And so... We're not going to have an easy time this morning, and yet the value will be great. These verses are so crucial for us, not only because they present the character of Christ, but these verses are actually the introduction to the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And if we misunderstand these verses, then actually we're we're going to struggle with understanding the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those hinge passages that we we have to understand correctly. So getting this passage right is crucial to the rest of our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, and even beyond that, it's going to go beyond that and even affect our understanding of all of the New Testament. Um, the problems in this passage have, have to do with how the Old Testament relates to the New, how law relates to gospel, how the believer is supposed to interact with the Old Testament. And those are challenging questions and things that we're going to need to find an answer today if we're going to understand this passage. So let's begin in verse number 17. We're going to discover two things this morning. First of all, Christ is going to establish the standard of righteousness. And second, he's going to elevate the standard of righteousness. Those are the two points we're going to see this morning. And that theme of righteousness is going to be the theme, starting in verse 17, that goes the whole way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're talking about righteousness. We're talking about a standard of righteousness. In verse 17, Christ says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ starts out this section by 
by adjusting his audience's thinking. You say, why, why did he have to adjust their thinking? Why did he have to say, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? Why were people thinking that that was part of Christ's intent? And there are a couple reasons for that. Um, I mean, Matthew hasn't given us any indication at this point, right? We haven't seen anywhere else in Matthew where people have misunderstood Christ or where they've criticized him. So Matthew hasn't shown anything. But later events are going to reveal that the Jews totally misunderstood Christ's teaching and what his work was. And this misunderstanding is going to run all throughout his ministry. He'd been teaching long enough by, by Matthew chapter 5. Christ had already been teaching long enough to have a reputation as a destructive revolutionist. Because what Christ brought to the table was something that the people of his day were totally unprepared for. And even what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen a spiritual approach to religious life, something that people in his day weren't used to. And in fact, they saw his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount on blessed are the poor in spirit, and they saw Christ's teaching and they said, I'm not sure how that connects to the law, the law that they had been taught over and over again. So there was massive confusion because of his teaching. Over and over again, Christ would denounce the Pharisees' authorities and their practices. And we need to understand going into this that we look down on the Pharisees now. I mean, when we say Pharisees, there's kind of a nasty taste in our mouth. We need to remember that that wasn't the case back then. I mean, the Pharisees were on the pedestal. They were elevated. They were the teachers of the law. And if you contradicted a Pharisee, it was the same thing as contradicting the law. They were in the place of authority. And so nobody looked down on them. Everybody looked up to them. And here comes Christ, and he starts arguing with them left and right. He, he repudiates their authority. Um, he doesn't just teach the law like they did, but he has this new teaching about grace and extraordinary grace. He starts associating with sinners, which the Pharisees would have never done. And there's all this confusion caused by his teaching and by his person. And so the question was being raised, is this something new? Is this something other than what the law and the prophets had to say? Um, I thought the Pharisees kind of had the corner on the law, and yet Christ always seems to be against the Pharisees, so is Christ against the law? This is a radically different perspective than what the cultural presuppositions of Jesus' day had said. There was history there. There was an understanding of the law, and that understanding was wrong. Their perspective was wrong, and so Christ needs to come and adjust the people's perspective. Knowing the people that Jesus was speaking to, knowing, knowing his audience, Christ prefaces this entirely new way of thinking about the law by reaffirming the place of the law. He puts the law in its right place as the standard of righteousness. Christ's ministry was different than what was expected, and so he needed to reiterate that he wasn't coming to overthrow the law. He was actually coming to fulfill it. He says, do not think, don't have this understanding that I have come. And that word come is, is a full word. It, it has the idea of appearing or arriving on the public scene. And it's not used exclusively of Christ appearing, but obviously it refers to the fact that Christ was aware that he was on a mission. When you, when you come, it means you came from somewhere. And in Christ's case, that means he came from heaven. He came on a mission. He says, don't think that I have come. Don't think my mission in coming is to abolish the law or the prophets. When he says abolished, he uses a word that's talking about destroying. In fact, when it's used other places in Scripture to talk about concrete objects, it's always used to talk about tearing a building down. All right? So think of a demolition crew. Christ says, I didn't come in as a demolition crew against the law. I didn't come to tear it down. I didn't come to get rid of it. Um, figuratively, the word is used of work that, that God is doing to eradicate. The idea is to put an end to to end the validity of something. And Christ affirms that his coming is not to nullify the law. He's not here to say, all that law stuff, just forget all of it. None of it matters. Let's, let's throw out the Old Testament. No, far from that, far from abolishing the law, he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. All right? And already, hopefully the wheels in your head are turning, and you're going, okay, I'm already running into a difficulty here, because if, if Christ is not abolishing the law, then why aren't we still following the law? Why does he seem to say that the food laws are being done with? Why is the sacrificial system done away with? Why don't Christians follow the details of the law today if Christ said, I'm not here to abolish it, I'm here to fulfill it? And we need to understand what he's saying in the contrast between abolishing and fulfilling. And Christ is saying, I've not come in a destructive kind of way. I'm not here to just throw aside the law and live separate from it. Instead, I'm coming to establish the standard of righteousness, which is the law and the prophets. 
When he says the law, he's referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. When he says the prophets, um, the, the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, they would divide the, latter, the, the former prophets, um, which, which would go um, from Judges on, um, they would, it would go from, um, I'm sorry, from Joshua to Second Kings. That was former prophets. And latter prophets is what we would generally think of as, as the prophets. And this, the way of describing the whole Old Testament was saying the law and the prophets. It was just a way of saying all of the Old Testament, putting it all together. Interesting, that, interesting thing about this passage is that Christ says the law or the prophets. It's the only time that we have the or in there instead of the law and the prophets. And Christ's point is to say both of these exclusive entities, both the law and the prophets, either or, I've come to fulfill them both in a special way. And so we must answer this morning, what does it mean when he says, I'm not here to abolish it, but I'm here to fulfill it? What does it mean that Christ said, I'm going to fulfill the law or the prophets? Because fulfill can mean a couple different things. It can mean he's just going to confirm it. Um, he's going to obey it, and then he's going to fulfill it in believers as they live their lives. Uh, it could mean he's going to fulfill it. He's going to explain it fully. He's going to round out people's understanding of the law and so fulfill it. Um, it could mean that he's going to complete it. What is, he, what is he saying when he says fulfill? That word fulfill is a word that means to bring to a designed goal or end. And when we think about fulfilling prophecy, for example, we don't struggle with that means, right? I mean, we're used to the idea fulfilling prophecy. It means doing what the prophecy said, Okay. So let's use that understanding. That's, that's the clearer part. When, we, when Christ said, I'm here to fulfill the prophets, we say, okay, I, I know what that means. He's going to accomplish what the prophets had to say. So there's not much debate about that in relation to the prophets, but the same is not true about the law. Christ is here affirming that he's going to fulfill both. And so we need to understand, what does it mean that you can fulfill the law and the prophets? And the point is that both the law and the prophets both prophesy. Christ says, says that himself in Matthew eleven twelve. He says the law and the prophets prophesy until John. They both have a predictive element. You need to understand that, that the law itself, although it's, it's not what we would think of as the prophetic books, the law itself has a prediction of a coming Christ. And so Jesus didn't see his life and ministry in opposition to the Old Testament, but in bringing it to fruition, to bring it to what it pointed to. Uh, let's look at a couple of different passages where Christ is clear that that's how he thinks of the Old Testament. John 5, verse 39. John 5, 39. This is Christ establishing the law as the standard of righteousness. All right? He's saying, I'm not here to, to destroy the standard of righteousness. I'm here to uphold it. John 5, 39. Again, this is, this is Christ responding to people that are accusing him against the Jews, against the Pharisees. And he says this in John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. All right? They thought they understood the scriptures. They thought they brought them life. But Christ says, it is they, what is he talking about? They, the scriptures. It is the scriptures, and when he's talking Old Testament scriptures, it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All right? Christ says very clearly, the scriptures point to me. That means the law. That means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That points to Christ as, lo- as well as all the rest of the Old Testament. Um, he clearly shows this in, at the end of his life as well. Luke 24. Flip over there real quick. Luke 24, verse number 25. It's the road to Emmaus. Christ has already come back from the dead. And he meets um, two folks on their, on their way to a, a town called Emmaus. And he joins them, and he talks to them, and he asks them why they're so sad, and they say, hey, are you a stranger? Don't you know what happened in Jerusalem? There was this guy, we thought he was a great prophet, his name was Jesus, but he died, and it's been three days, and he said he was going to rise again. And so they have this whole discussion. Verse 25, this is what Christ says to them. O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that, what? All that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with who? Beginning with Isaiah, who gave us Isaiah 53, beginning with Jeremiah that talked about the suffering servant, beginning where did he explain himself? Beginning with Moses, all right? We're talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, even the law, even the law pointed forward to a person, and that person was Jesus. What types there are in the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. The sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. The need for righteousness, the requirement for righteousness pointed to Jesus. And far from Jesus saying, I don't care about all that righteousness stuff, I don't care about the sacrifices, he was saying, I've come to fulfill them in their fullest. This is messianic fulfillment. The law was not just commands. It was also a prediction of a Christ to come. However, it did include commands. And so Christ fulfilled, when we read in Matthew 5 that he he came to fulfill the law, he came to fulfill the predictions, the prophecies about him that were included in both the law and the prophets, but he also came to fulfill the demands. He was going to execute the plan set forth in the Old Testament and bring it to pass. And he was going to carry out to fulfill in the sense of full obedience, literally carrying out everything that has been said in the law and the prophets. He's going to do what had been said. This is a remarkable statement from Christ that the law finds its completion in what? In a person. The law finds its completion in a person. And so there's, there are these multifaceted look at this fulfillment. What are some ways that Christ fulfilled the law? He fulfilled the law with his obedience. Okay? Galatians 4.4 4 reminds us that at, at the due time, at the proper time, Christ was born of a woman, born under what? Born under the law. What standard can we use to, to say that Christ is without sin? We use the law. Because Christ lived his life according to the law. And he lived that life perfectly. He met every requirement of the law. He met all of the requirements of the Old Testament. He didn't break it even one time. Romans 8, verse number 1, we read these words. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The point is that we have peace with God. Why? Because Christ was completely righteous according to the standard of the law. And we, just need a, we just need to stop here and, and realize that we're not having some esoteric theological discussion this morning. If Christ did not fully meet the standard of the law, you don't have a Savior this morning. Christ had to meet every requirement the law put down. With his obedience, Christ provided a perfect righteousness. And there is no other way you can be saved this morning unless you have that perfect righteousness put on your account. And so that perfect righteousness, according to the standard of the law, Christ had to fulfill it in every respect, in every way he had to keep the law. That was God's measuring stick. That was God's standard. And Christ fulfilled that standard in every way, never breaking a single point. Christ fulfilled the law with his obedience, but he fulfilled it as well in his death. Christ took the curse of the law on his body at the cross. Galatians 3 tells us that there was a curse that came from the law. See, the law condemns anybody that can't keep it perfectly. And that would be mean everybody that's sitting in this room this morning. If the law were still in effect today, there was no way you could ever obey all of its requirements. There is no way that you could find salvation in it. It would be impossible. And so there was a curse that came from the law. And yet, Galatians 3 tells us that, that Christ took that curse on his body on the tree. He bore the curse. And so this idea of Christ fulfilling the law is necessary for your salvation. Man, we were, we were doomed if it weren't for Christ having perfect righteousness that can become ours. Imagine, imagine for a moment that uh, you, are, you are bankrupt. And hopefully none of you have to need, need, uh, can imagine that too clearly. Uh, hopefully none of you are close to that state. But uh, imagine you're bankrupt. And along comes somebody, you have a friend, and he's a very, very wealthy friend. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and pay your way out of your bankruptcy. I'm, I'm going to give you everything you need to get out. 
But that's not all he says. He says, as a matter of fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and add you um, on my checking account. It's going to say Joe Schmo and your name. And so when you write a check, it's got all the authority of the checks I write. You have everything in the bank that I have. Right? That's an analogy of what Christ did for us. He didn't just take away our sin. He gave us every resource of righteousness that is his. And so every way that Christ is fully righteous for believers, they can become fully, completely righteous, that God will look down at you and say, you are 100% righteous because when I see you, I see my son. It is absolutely critical to our salvation that Christ fulfill the law. Because what happened at the cross wasn't just God forgetting that we were sinners. The cross was, was not the opportunity, and your, your forgiveness isn't God being like a grandpa that goes, well, yeah, you did wrong against me, but I just don't mind. There's, there's no way for God to just kind of pardon your sin for no reason. God doesn't just forgive us for no reason. He forgives us because his perfect son took all of our sin on him while he gave us his perfect righteousness. It's what's called the great exchange. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. And how was he determined to be righteous? It was the standard of the law. And so Christ completely fulfilled the law and the prophets. He kept them in every respect. And that keeping is the only way to salvation for you. His perfect righteousness becomes yours. We can only understand the cross in terms of law. That was a legal event at the cross. And so all the Old Testament, we don't, we don't just look at that and go, man, there's all these demands and it's kind of long and boring and... No, those were righteous demands that our Christ kept. And we can compare Christ to those commands and say, what an amazing Christ who could obey all that and give us that righteousness. Because it doesn't take you very long at all, reading law, to go, there's so much here. Like, what if we were still living under that? Can you imagine the weight? Because Romans tells us that the law was a taskmaster to show us that we were all sinners. And there's no way we could keep the law. And so this morning, this legal event that happened at the cross... The cross was not a cosmic tragedy. The cross was not God's oppor- Christ's opportunity to show himself to be a, to a good man and to give some moral influence while follow him. He was such a good martyr. No, it was Christ taking the punishment that the law demanded. It was God punishing him instead of punishing you. And it was you getting his righteousness. This morning... If your love for Christ has gone cold, if, if you find yourself in one of those places that we find ourselves in in our spiritual lives where things just aren't there and, man, your devotional life just, just kind of dry and you haven't really thought that hard about spiritual things, you need to go back to the cross. And you need to understand what happened there. We need to understand what happened at the cross. Consider that we were on the brink of death. We were doomed. We were hopeless, helpless. And suddenly we were rescued by someone who met the perfect standard of righteousness. And we, we have every reason to be filled with joy this morning as believers. We have every reason to have delight. We have every reason to worship our Christ this morning. We don't have to wallow in, in sin if that's where you are this morning. Man, you have per- Christ's perfect righteousness. You have no need this morning to, to fear the wrath of God if you have taken Christ's righteousness. If, if it is on you. Man, God's wrath is lifted against you. There is peace there. You in need of peace? Go to the cross. And you will find that your sin, our greatest need, our sin has been dealt with. The law demanded a curse. It it demanded condemnation. It, It demanded damnation. And Christ took it for you. The law demanded it, and the law got it at the cross. So, this amazing statement from Christ Imagine how it blew the minds of those who heard it the first time. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not here to set them aside. Far from that, I'm here to fulfill them in their greatest sense. And I, as a person, am going to to keep this whole law. Christ didn't just get rid of the law. He fulfilled its purpose. And our whole eternity depends on that truth. Our attitude towards the Old Testament radically affects our attitude towards Christ. Because if we would go back to the Old Testament, we would grow in our appreciation for our Christ. We would grow in our appreciation for what no longer has to be our weight that he took. We would understand grace better if we understood law better. We would understand Christ's sacrifice better if we understood the weight that should have been ours, the punishment that should have been ours. If we would compare ourselves to the standard of righteousness that was in the Old Testament, we would see how far short we fell 
and then we would praise our Christ for, for bridging that gap that we never could. We would say, here's the standard of righteousness that the law demanded, and I know I could never make it. I know that I have fallen totally short from the glory of God as revealed in his standard of righteousness, and there's no way for me to get that righteousness if it weren't for Christ. Understanding the Old Testament correctly totally removes any kind of works righteousness. It totally removes any kind of misunderstanding that we can be good enough to get to God. Read your Old Testament and you'll understand there's no way I could do everything that God required. It's impossible. You need to understand, though, that there is a result of Christ fulfilling the law. When Christ fulfilled the law, there was a replacement that happened. Okay? You need to understand this. This is different than saying that Christ just got rid of the law. All right? Christ did not just... Christ did not just ignore the law and set it aside. He fulfilled it. But what happened? What was the result of Christ fulfilling it? Let's take, for example, the sacrifices. It is foolish to return to goat sacrifices, to animal sacrifices, once you have the perfect sacrifice of Christ. See, Christ fulfilled all of those demands, and so we don't need ceremonial sacrifices anymore because we have the perfect sacrifice. So in that way, Christ, Christ fulfilled what the sacrifice is pointed to, and the result is we don't need them anymore. Right? That's not the same as saying he abolished all of them. No, those sacrifices, that was still God's requirement back then. That was still what he had said. That's still the standard to use. But when, he, when, he, when Christ became the perfect sacrifice, we don't need sacrifices anymore. That's different than saying he just abolished the law. He just threw it out. I don't care about it anymore. No, he fulfilled this law. And just like it would be foolish to return to the sacrifices once you have the perfect sacrifices, it would be foolish for us to return to commands that are pre-Christ. We have a, we have a new covenant now. That's, that's why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. An old covenant, an old law, and a new covenant, a new law. Right? And the New Testament is clear about this. The fact that there is a new covenant implies that there, there was one that was old and that it's been replaced. We don't need it anymore. All right? So Christ, Christ did replace that old covenant with the new covenant because he fulfilled it perfectly. It's not the same as saying he just abolished it as in I don't care about it anymore. Okay? That's the point. Have the right perspective about that. All right? We can't miss the staggering weight of Christ's claim here. He says that all of the Old, Old Testament points to him. It's wrapped up in him. It's fulfilled by him as a person. He never disagreed with the authority of the Old Testament, but with how people were interpreting it. And he raised the standard. He was saying, my teaching is in harmony with the law, and it was necessary for me to live the way I did to fulfill the law. He established the standard of righteousness. He said, the Old Testament points to me. Let's move on to verse 18. He gave us a reason. Why, why would Christ say, I didn't just come to just set aside the law to get rid of it, I don't care about it anymore? Well, the reason is that that law, those commands of God, were permanent. Verse 18, for truly, this is a statement of emphasis, of, of force. Christ says, hey, pay attention, this is true, this is right. Pay attention here. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ says, I say to you, which by itself is, is just a real contrast to what the Pharisees would have said. The Pharisees would have said, well, Rabbi so-and-so interpreted Rabbi so-and-so who interpreted the law to say. And Christ never does that. He takes the full authority on himself. He's already said, all the prophets point to me. He's already said, I can keep the whole law and obey it perfectly. Now he says, I say to you, here's what you need to know, until heaven and earth pass away. All right, that can be just an expression that says never. I mean, this is until until the end of time. But actually, it's probably better to understand. We do know that there is a day coming when it says heaven. It means the sky, not as in heaven, God's dwelling. There is a time when the sky and the earth are going to pass away. That's a very literal, real thing coming. Sorry if that spoils the end for you, but it is coming. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. Um, but until that happens, he says, not in iota. All right, perhaps your Bible says jot. Um, it's recognized as the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It kind of looks like an apostrophe, all right? So you can imagine an apostrophe in your mind. So not a jot, or he says, not a yoda, jot, nor a dot. Maybe you have tittle. That's kind of the common, not a jot or a tittle. Uh, you can say, what in the world are we talking about? Uh, a tittle is kind of like a tiny hook on a letter. Uh, if you know what like a serif font is on your computer, you have some serif fonts and some not serif, just a, like a little end on a letter. 
And in Hebrew alphabet, you've got to have these tittles, these dots, to distinguish one letter from another. There's a couple letters that look exactly the same. Um, for instance, if you imagine a backwards B in your mind, if this isn't too complicated. All right, backwards B, all right, that's one letter. And then if you just add a little extension on the end of that backwards B, that's a whole different letter. Okay, we're talking tiny, tiny little mark. And um, I spent some time taking Hebrew, and uh, Hebrew is kind of, uh, like the writing is a little challenging. It's kind of artistic, you know. Um, you've seen, like, you know, it's not quite as, as much as, like, Japanese writing. But uh, if any of you know anything about my writing, you know that my writing mixed with the need to be careful in Hebrew is a really bad combination. Because if you just miss one little hook, you've got a whole different letter. And if you don't put a dot in the right spot, you've got two totally different things. In fact, they have two letters in the alphabet back to back that both sound like S's that are two totally different letters. And one has a dot on the left and one has a dot on the right. Okay? And that's a bad thing for me because my, my writing is just horrendous. But, but Christ is really elevating the fact that not, not a single one of those marks, not the smallest letter, not the smallest point on the smallest letter, not a single one of those is going to pass away until heaven and earth do. There were 66,000 plus jots in the Old Testament. There was innumerable amount of tittles or dots. There's no way you could count all the dots that are there. These tiniest letters, the tiniest hook on a letter, and Christ is saying none of them are going to pass away. They're not going to cease None of them, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished. And Christ is here affirming not just the ideas that are in the law, but he's actually affirming the very written letters. Right? This is a statement of preservation, right? The fact that even the letters are going to endure. And this remarkable statement says, look, I'm not going to set aside the law because the law is permanent. It's not going anywhere, ever. The law is, is always going to exist. It says, until all is accomplished. Um, if you're using uh, King James, it uses the word fulfilled. Well, this is a totally different word than what was used in 17. So it's actually better to, to have a word like accomplished or done, um, come to pass maybe, you might have in your Bible. And, and that's helpful because the idea is until all that is in God's plan is accomplished, until all that, that God planned to do from the Old Testament on, until all that's done, the law's not going anywhere. It's always going to be here. It's always going to be the standard of righteousness that we can look back to and compare Christ to. All right? That standard isn't going anywhere. And Christ isn't saying, I'm trying to just get rid of this and pretend it doesn't exist. You couldn't do that because the law is never going to stop existing. Okay? That's Christ's point. That's the reason. He says, I'm not, here to, I'm not here to try to get rid of it. This law is not going anywhere. It's permanent. I'm not trying to abolish it. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to bring it to its fullest completion. Christ is establishing the standard of righteousness, but that's not all he's doing in this passage. He's also elevating the standard of righteousness. Verse 19. Therefore, because all these things are true, because Christ came to fulfill the law, because the law is not going anywhere, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ is elevating the standard of righteousness because righteousness determines rank in the kingdom of God. All right? And now we're getting to a point where we are really hitting into some deep water. So if you were, uh, if you were snoozing off a little bit before, now you're really going to go, what in the world is going on in this verse? It says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Okay? We can understand that. Whoever relaxes, who kind of sets it aside. Um, least of these commandments. Um, we know that Christ said that there were some things that were the weightier matters of the law. Okay? All of God's law matters. You can't set aside any of it. But Christ himself said there are parts that were weightier. All right? What did Christ say was the greatest commandment in the whole law? Obviously, if we have a greatest commandment, we can have a not as great commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Seconds likened to it, which is what? Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the whole prophets hang on those two things. Okay? So that's why Christ would call them the greatest commandments. So we don't have to get hung up on the fact that there are greater and lesser commandments. It's Christ said that. He, he explained that. But this says, whoever relaxes one at least of these commandments, and not only personally relaxes them, but teaches others to do the same, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And the question that you ought to be asking yourself right now is, what are these commands? Because whatever these commands are, I don't want to be somebody that relaxes them. And I don't want to be somebody that teaches others to relax them. Because what's left for me, if, what's, the, what's the serious weight if we relax these commands or if we teach others? What's going to happen to us? 
we're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so there's, there's, a serious, there's a serious issue going on here. There are only three possibilities for what these commands talks about. All right, first of all, these commands could point to the entire Old Testament. And so Christ is here saying, if, if you relax any of the Old Testament, and if you teach other people that they don't have to do any of the Old Testament, then you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. And so practically, we have to keep everything in the Old Testament law or else we're going to be leased in the kingdom of heaven. All right? That's option one. Now, there are a couple of good arguments that, that let us know that that's not what Christ is saying. All right? First of all, there's a very practical one that's, that's sitting in front of us right now. Um, right now, you're living as if the law ended. Right? You know that, right? You live right now as if the law is over. And I've got ample evidence of that just looking out at you. First of all, I'm looking out at you, and it's Sunday, all right? Sabbath is Saturday. Today is not Saturday. Today is Sunday, all right? You've broken the law because I would imagine that yesterday none of you stayed within a two-block radius of your house. I don't imagine that any of you tried worshiping yesterday and refused to. No, you didn't keep the Sabbath yesterday. Uh, today's Sunday. Um, I didn't see any of you coming down the aisle this morning with lambs, all right? And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that didn't happen. Nobody brought some grain offerings in. Um, so you've broken the ceremonial law. I noticed that some of you are wearing polyester or some other garments of mixed fabric. All right, Jews, they're not allowed to wear mixed fabric. You, you, cotton only. I know some of you are wearing cotton and, and other things. All right, you've broken the law. Um, some of you guys this morning, I know that you've shaved. All right, you can't do that. You can't trim the corners of your beard. Sorry, Ken, the, the whole uh, you know Van Dyke or whatever that is. You're not allowed to do that according to the law. All right, can't do it. And, and, and some, some of you ladies, you say, that's right, go get them. Uh, there's a lot of things in the law that you haven't done this today either, all right? Um, there are all kinds of regulations that, that we don't do. In fact, the early church clearly stopped obeying the ceremonial law. Um, and if Christ was really saying, you have to keep the whole Old Testament, it's remarkable that the church would have so quickly departed from what he expected them to do. But instead, what we see is that the Mosaic regulations were clearly lifted. All right? We're in Galatians 2 and Sunday school, right? And that's a really providential time for us, to, for us to have that passage. The whole point of Galatians is that there are people that taught what? What were the Judaizers, what were the false teachers teaching? They were teaching you had to keep the law as part of salvation. And so the whole point of Galatians is, no, you don't. You don't have to keep the law. It was, it was the message of Paul. Um, this battle of we have to keep the whole Old Testament, and there are people that are trying to return to Jewish roots. They're trying to go back to the Old Testament. Look, this battle was fought and decided in Acts in the early church. And then it was reinforced in places like Galatians. And the Jerusalem conflict, the Jerusalem council, clearly determined that Gentiles, there was no reason to force them to keep the law. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to live as Jewish people did. All right, this, has all been, this has all been dealt with. It's, it's an insult to the gospel to return to living the law. That's Paul's message in Galatians. And we need to face the sobriety of that, of that way of thinking. And we have the, the early church, and they were in just, it was a struggle. It was chaos because the early church was composed of Jewish people, and so they had the law, and yet they had Christ. And there was just tension between Old Covenant, New Covenant. And the end result was, well, the apostles clearly taught, no, we're living under new covenant now. We're living under new law. And so you don't have to go back to circumcision and all of those other things. Okay? It's been dealt with, and that should be clear in our mind. It's an insult. And I think that just, it needs to be that clear in our mind. It's an insult to the gospel. It's an insult to what Christ did to go back to living the law. Just like it would be an insult to Christ if we tried to keep on doing sacrifices. Why? Why would you keep sacrificing when you have the greatest sacrifice for your sin? Okay? So, you have some people that say, okay, I, I mean, surely these commands don't talk about the whole Old Testament. But maybe, secondly, these commands mean the moral parts of the law. All right, and this is a lot more common argument. You've got the moral parts of the law. So the law, they say, is kind of split up into three main groups. You guys know this? Some people would say the law, there's moral part, there's ceremonial part, and there's civil part, right? And all that's part of the law. And so they'd say, well, um, we know that the national part is done away. Um, we know that the ceremonial part's done away. I mean, that part's just unavoidable. There's no way that anybody biblically can say the ceremonial law ought to still be in effect. So those are clearly done with. But maybe there's an aspect of the law that's just moral. And so 
The question is, is the Christian released from the law as a rule of life? Okay, we understand that salvation does not depend on keeping the law, but what about righteousness? Can, do we have to obey the law to have righteousness? Do we have to obey the Old Testament? All right, there are some direct answers to this, and, and let's, let's listen to a couple. First of all, here, here's the question, why must I obey the law? All right, this is just a, a straight quote. Why, why do I have to obey the law? The keeping of the precepts of God, as recorded in the Old Testament, will make a difference in our eternal reward. Okay? You see how clearly that said? It said, look, the, the better you keep the precepts, the principles of the Old Testament, the, the better the difference you'll have in your reward. Okay? I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is what some people have said. All right? Here's, a, here's another, just as clear. Holiness means being righteous. And being righteous means keeping the law. What is the will of God? the Ten Commandments, and the moral law. Okay? These are straight claims that say, okay, when Christ says you have to keep these commands, we have to keep the moral aspects of the law. And so when he says do not murder, that's not restricted to a, a national rule, that's not a ceremonial rule, that's a, that's a moral kind of rule. And so the, all, anything that's a moral kind of rule still sticks. And so we have to go in our Old Testament and figure out which parts are the moral rules, which parts are the ceremonial rules, which parts are the civil rules. Okay? threefold division of the law. And I would like to encourage you this morning that there's a couple really significant problems with, with that understanding of the law. First of all, consider our, our close context. Um, has, has Christ said anything about limiting this to one aspect of the law? No, he, he just said not a single jot or not a single tittle. I mean, he's saying down to that level of detail. And so if these commands refers to that level of detail, there's no way we can say, oh, it's just the moral part. Okay? That's a problem. Another problem is that neither the Old Testament or the New Testament ever says anything about a threefold division of moral, ceremonial, and civil. In fact, in contrast to that, Paul, every single time he says law, it's always in the singular. In other words, the law is a unit. It's an unbreakable unit. What we call the, what we call the law, Pentateuch, there's, you can't divide that up. It's just one. It's the law. Right? can't split it up. Um, so a common way to split up the law is, for instance, the Ten Commandments, all right? So Ten Commandments is a common example. People say, well, the law is summed up in Ten Commandments, and so you have to do that, all right? Now, there are a couple things wrong with that. If the Ten Commandments are, are still in effect, then why don't we still enforce the penalties of the Ten Commandments, all right? That's one thing to consider. If the Ten Commandments are still in effect, why aren't the promises fulfilled, all right? What's the Fifth Commandment? Anybody know the Fifth Commandment? I use this one a lot with, with kids, you know, only I don't use the Ten Commandments. What's, what's the fifth commandment in relation to kids? Okay, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with promise because what will happen if you honor your father and mother? They will, you, yeah, that's right. You'll dwell in the land. You'll live long in the land. All right. Now, we like to go to that and we just say, well, it's talking about living long. No, it's not. What, what, did, what did that mean, the Ten Commandments, when he said live long in the land? Did he mean in the land of America? No, it's talking about the promised land. So do you really mean to tell me that if you honor your parents, you are going to live long over in Israel in your earthly life? Okay? No. And nobody would say that. We're living here in America. Uh, some of you will never step foot in Israel. Um, so why aren't the promises fulfilled if we still have to keep all the Ten Commandments? You see, the Ten Commandments are just another part of the Mosaic Law. It's all part. It's all one. You can't just divvy it up. I like some parts and I don't like other parts. It's the law. And what I think is a really conclusive argument is the fact that against, against this idea that we can call it the moral law is that there's no clarity what moral means. Okay? What is moral? Moral is what God says is moral. What's right is what God approves. What, it, what he approves is fundamentally right. What he forbids is fundamentally wrong. And so, for instance, when he approved certain ceremonies in the Old Testament, it was immoral not to do those ceremonies because he said so. And so there's not an, ex, there's, that's not an exclusive argument to say we've got moral on one side and ceremonial on the other. No, if God said you have to slaughter a lamb, guess what? If you don't slaughter a lamb, you're a sinner. Okay? You can't just divide up, well, the parts of it are moral and parts of it aren't. No. What is ceremonial is right if God says it's right. And Paul himself continually argues that the Mosaic law no longer binds Christians. Okay? Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. You're not under law. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, just like a woman that was married to a husband, the husband died, she's not his wife anymore. He's dead. It's the exact same way with the law. We're dead to it. Just like a, just like a widower is no longer responsible. He can, he can marry. 
He's not married anymore. Okay? Same thing with the law. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The law is done. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are free from the law. And we're not just free from the law as a means of justification because the law has never been a means of justification, ever. All right? Not in the Old Testament. Nobody, nobody became righteous because they kept the law. Never happened. So when it says we're free from the law, it has to mean something else besides we're free as a means to justification, and that is we're free from its commands. You're free from the commands of the Old Testament. Paul himself said, To the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. It's clear that what he's saying is, I'm not under the law's commands. The law's demands. We can be so over-eager to protect ourselves against people saying, Well, you don't care about any kind of law. That we say, well, no, we're not anti-law. Law, and so we moralize the Old Testament law. Listen, law comes from God's character, which is constant. Okay? doesn't change. But his moral, his moral rules, they don't change. But the applications can and do change. Right? Was there law in the Garden of Eden? Yeah. Okay? You're not allowed to eat from, from these trees. That's a law. Okay? But that wasn't the Mosaic law. But that was the application of God's character. And then we have the Mosaic Law, which is a specific application to a specific group of people. And now, we are free from the law. We're never free from any law. In fact, Christ's whole point when he says these commands is this. You have to keep all of the commands of the perfect lawgiver. That is, the one who fulfilled the law, Those are we have to listen to all of his commands. We are free from Old Testament law. Paul says, to those who are without law is without law. They're not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Okay, We're not under Old Testament law. We're under the law of Christ. And so the best way of understanding this passage is we must keep Christ's commands, those that come from the fulfilled law. Verse 19, he keeps talking about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom commands. And so when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, talking about the commandments that Christ brings to us. He's about to bring a whole bunch to us in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to have the rest of the New Testament where Christ is going to bring us commands. And over and over again, Matthew says, Christ is the one you must listen to. I mean, what's Matthew's whole point? Where have we been going with this whole... Where, where's Matthew going with this whole argument about Christ? He started out saying Christ is the only Messiah, right? He's the one you should listen to, and he's going to keep repeating that. Jesus is the king, all right? How many of you, when we started in Matthew... I mean, it was like, wasn't it like every week that Adam just kept saying, Jesus is the king, you've got to listen to him? I mean, you remember that? It was like, it was, application was the same, like every, Jesus is the king, Jesus is the, okay, we're, I mean, Matthew just keeps hitting us over the head with this thing. You've got to obey him. We get to the very end of Matthew, and he said, and Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world and do what? I want you to teach and make disciples, and what are you supposed to teach them? To do all things whatsoever I have commanded you his commands have to be obeyed so when we read that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments we're talking about the commandments that christ brings it's not a reference to the old testament law okay now that's a that's an interpretive that's an interpretation we've come to and i'm keenly aware that we had better be right about that because if i'm not right what did i just do right now i just told you you don't have to live according to the old testament if i'm wrong what does that mean about me right now you can call me least in the kingdom of heaven if I'm wrong about that. Okay? That's a serious thing. That's a weighty thing. And yet, the argument of Scripture is we are free from the Old Testament because now we're not just free from any law. Now we are slaves to a new law. We're slaves to Christ's law. And so it's referred to in James as the royal law. We refer to it as the law of Christ. It's called the law of love. I mean, there are more than enough commands in the New Testament for us to live by. And we don't say, well, we just throw off any kind of commands. No, we have commands from Christ who fulfilled the law. You don't have to worry because I say you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. You don't have to worry that I'm saying, ah, you just live any way you want. It doesn't matter. No, we, we have multiple commands that you must live by, but they're the commands that come from Christ, the one who fulfilled the law. Okay? So some of you are saying, are, are you really mean I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? Technically, that's absolutely correct. You don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. All right? They're, they're done. All right? Now, I say technically because actually the New Testament repeats every single command of the Ten Commandments except one, the one being, remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Other than that, every other command the new, uh, of, the, of the Ten Commandments gets repeated. Okay? 
But we don't keep the, those commands, the Ten Commandments, because they're in the Ten Commandments. That's law. That's Moses. That's done. Because Christ fulfilled all of that. Okay? So, once the law is fulfilled, we should listen to the one who has fulfilled it, rather than to keep the law as the code. Christ was, Christ was who the law pointed to, and so it's folly for us not to listen to him. So the Sermon on the Mount places a tremendous emphasis on obedience to Christ, and that's why I said that Christ, he establishes the law, and then he elevates the standard of righteousness, because the standard of righteousness is Christ's commands. And it is true that if you were to relax the least of one of Christ's commands, and you taught others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say you won't be part of the kingdom of heaven. It says you're going to be least. It says, whoever does all right, his own practices, he does the commandments of Christ, and he teaches them to others, he'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Scripture is clear that when, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, there, there is ranking and there is priority. Not Everyone isn't on equal terms when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. Yes, everybody is, every Christian is equally in the kingdom of heaven, but there are some who have followed the commands of Christ better, who have taught more clearly. Um, and there is, a, there is a ranking. And it comes from what? comes from obeying a standard of righteousness. And what is that standard of righteousness? Is it the Old Testament? No, the standard of righteousness is what Christ has commanded us. Okay? And so we have to obey him. And there is, there is application in that for you this morning. You, you have to obey the commands of our Christ. If there is anything in our New Testament that you say, man, I just don't like that part. I, can't, can't we ignore? Can't we ignore that one? Can we, can we water that one down a little bit? That whole part about Jesus being the only way of salvation. I mean, can we figure some way around that? Uh, no, you can't. Um, that whole, you know, Romans tells us that, you know, fornicators and idolaters and homosexuals, and uh, they won't be in heaven. I mean, look, that's, I mean, nobody wants to say that in today's society. Can't we get around that? Wasn't, no, you can't. And if you're going to practice something that Christ says you shouldn't, and if you teach others that they don't have to practice it either, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Christ is clear about this point. And he has given yet another astonishing claim. He's saying, I have a standard that you have to keep that is not the law. And the people in the Sermon on the Mount are just reeling. He said, I'm going to fulfill all of the law, me, myself, I can keep it all, and it's all pointing to me. He's, he's now saying, I have commands that you have to keep, and if you don't, it's going to impact your eternity. In fact, ranking in the kingdom turns on our degree of conformity to Jesus' teaching as that teaching fulfills Old Testament revelation. His teaching, toward which the whole Old Testament pointed, has to be obeyed. When we say that, that Christ is Lord, that means that he has to be listened to. And, and that's for you this morning, Christian. You've got to listen to what your Lord has to say. There is no option for you to go, man, I just don't, I can, I can take or leave Christ's commands in the New Testament. No, you can't. He is the great lawgiver. He has elevated the standard of righteousness. He has said righteousness determines rank in the kingdom. And now he's going to go even further and he's going to say righteousness decides entrance into the kingdom in verse number 20. For I tell you, as a matter of fact, while we're talking about righteousness conforming to this standard, the standard of Christ, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, Jesus' listeners, surely they are just totally blown away. I have to be more holy than who? The Pharisees? I mean, they spend their whole lives studying the Bible. They, they have all of these intricate laws that they've come up with to make sure they're obeying. And I have to be more righteous than them? You've you got to be kidding me. This, the standard is, is even harder than the Pharisees? I mean, the Pharisees came up Pharisees came up with a gazillion ways that they had to try to follow the law. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, it, it greatly exceeds. It's an emphatic statement. Right? The Pharisees counted 248 commandments in the Old Testament and 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year, they said. All right? And so... Are you you telling me that, like, well, most of the Pharisees, they they couldn't quite do the whole 365. They could only pull off about, you know, 350. So to be a kingdom citizen, you've got to break that 350 plane. All right? Is that Christ's point? You've got to go that extra mile that the Pharisees couldn't go? No. Christ is not asking for more obedience, but deeper. He's saying, I don't want immediately external obedience, but I want 
and internal. See, the Sermon on the Mount is a call to righteousness, but it's not the external contemporary definition of righteousness. It's not what the Pharisees said was righteousness. This is God's standard. It's the elevation of God's standard of righteousness. Christ didn't come to avoid the law. He didn't come to make it easier, to make it more palatable. In fact, he said, this is more difficult than what the Pharisees are trying to do. Trouble with the Pharisees is that they were interested in the details rather than the principles. They were interested in actions rather than motives. They were interested in doing rather than in being. And Christ is going to attack that directly. Uh, it's interesting that direct attacks on other people's teaching isn't so common today, right? I mean, did Christ really have to take these guys to task? Yes, he really did, because this is a matter of entering the kingdom of heaven or not. Pharisaic righteousness, what was it like? It was external alone instead of internal and external. See, Christ's standard of righteousness is you can't just do what's right on the outside. That's not enough. So you're, you can never just do on the outside things that are right. You have to have the right heart. And so in our Christian lives, we can't walk around going, well, I, I did the right thing, and that's all we focus on. No, you have to do the right thing with the right heart attitude too. All right, you ever see this with, with kids where they obey you, but you know that they're kicking the whole time? Okay, that doesn't fly in the kingdom of heaven. Right? You've got to have an internal righteousness as well. The Pharisees, they thought as long as the outside was okay, as long as I washed the outside of the cup, it's okay. No, Christ said it has to be internal. The Pharisaic righteousness was self-made instead of God-made. They made their own standards. They used themselves as, as, the, as the grid. They said, as long as you make it to this level of righteousness, you're okay. Christ says, no, you have to make it to perfect righteousness. The Pharisaic righteousness glorified self instead of glorifying God. See, every standard of legalism, it, self, it sets itself up as, as better than God's standard. It says, let's just go, let's go higher. Let's go a little bit more. And it's all about glorifying me instead of glorifying God. The genuine gospel always, always exalts itself over every form of legalism. Christ's way, Christ's way is way more challenging than any human legalistic system could ever be. And so just as the Beatitudes drew us up short, these requirements, they should, they should shock us. We should gasp in dismay. I have to be thoroughly righteous, more righteous than the Pharisees? And we should be conscious of the fact that we are spiritually bankrupt. I have, to, I have to meet this whole new level, this whole standard. Because that way of thinking, the, the Jewish way of, of righteous thinking, that way of legalism, unfortunately, it, it so easily penetrates all of us. It affects unbelievers. Every other religion in the world, outside of genuine Christianity, says you can work your way to God. You can do enough stuff to please God. Only genuine Christianity says, no, it's a grace gift. It's through faith. And yet that, way of, that legalistic way of thinking influences us as Christians, and we fall into the trap. If I just do enough, I'll please God. Now You can even think that about coming on a Sunday. Man, I, I'm here again. Now aren't I spiritual? Man, I didn't yell at my kids this week. Aren't I spiritual? I read my Bible six out of the seven days. Aren't I spiritual? And we set up our own little standards of what makes a person righteous. And Christ says, no, what is righteous is doing what I have said. That's the standard of righteousness, keeping these commands. Not only externally keeping them, but keeping them with the right heart. That is, that is a decimating blow to any kind of legalistic standard. The legalistic standard that says, if you look okay on the outside, it's okay, it doesn't matter what's going on, on the inside. No, Christ demands a pervasive righteousness. And so what, sh what should we come away with this passage from? I mean, what should we be thinking as we close this passage? We should have an exalted view of our Christ, right? You should have a better worship of Christ as you consider the fact that he kept, far from just getting rid of the law, he kept it perfectly. He fulfilled the law, and all of that law points to him. And so when we go to our Old Testament, and you ought to be going to your Old Testament, you can't just set the Old Testament aside. When you go to your Old Testament, look for Christ, because from Moses on it points to him. We don't look for him in allegory. We don't look for him under bushes. We see the points. We see the principles that point to him. We see how, how there, were, there were prophets and priests and kings who, who always failed in Israel's history, but they were pointing to the fact that one day there would be a perfect prophet and a perfect priest and a perfect king who was our Christ. So we have an exalted view of him, and we should worship him more this morning. We should consider the fact that what happened at the cross was, was perfect, perfect righteousness being credited to our account. Man, we should worship God this morning. Not because God has just forgotten about our sins, but because he put them on Christ and then gave us Christ's righteousness.
This passage leads us to an exalted view of Christ. And it should also lead us to a renewed dedication to obedience. Righteousness matters. Keeping the commands of Christ matter. We don't keep them in order to please God. We keep them because God has loved us and we love him back. The Sermon on the Mount is going to continue to detail righteousness. In fact, in the coming weeks, we are going to get, we are going to get kicked around a lot by the Sermon on the Mount. And it's going to challenge us in, in our lives, how do we measure up against the standard of righteousness? And right from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, even this morning, you need to commit yourself to the fact that if, when Christ makes a command, I'm going to live it. And I have a renewed dedication to obedience. And even as we go throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, and he just piles and piles and piles on top of us, righteousness that needs to be ours, and we're, we see ways that we fall up short, we, this morning we need to have a renewed dedication that it matters. Righteousness matters. How you live matters. Unless your righteousness this morning is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. How could you get a righteousness better than theirs? You could only get it in one place, and that's if you have Christ's righteousness. If you're here this morning and you don't have Christ's righteousness, if you say, man, I just have never thought about the gospel that way, you need the righteousness of Christ. You can't get to heaven on your own. You are going to try and fail and try and fail unless you have a better righteousness than the Pharisees, an internal one, and there's only one internal righteousness, and it comes from Christ. Christian, let your, let your hope be there. Put your confidence in a righteousness that's not your own doing, a righteousness that comes from Christ. He's the great lawgiver, and we should listen to him.